0: Uh, their identity. Let me talk about three folks known to me, uh, Jim and Joe and Jane. Okay, so first, Jim. Uh, Jim was having headaches, recurring headaches, none of them very bad, uh, and he was convinced it was nothing serious, maybe just a bit of stress. But at the insistence of his wife, he made an appointment with the GP, went in to talk to the GP who referred him for some tests. He went to the local hospital, he had some tests done, and after a week or so, he was invited back to the GP surgery. He was reading OK magazine or whatever you do in the waiting room, uh, invited in, and his GP, who he knew uh, as quite a cheery chap, uh, somehow that day seemed a bit somber, and he said, Jim, I'm so sorry, Uh, the results are back, and they're not good, Uh, I'm afraid uh, you have a tumor that requires immediate surgery. That's Jim. Let me tell you about Joe. Uh, Joe arrives home from a day at work that's been quite tough and stressful. Uh, but when he arrives back, he's surprised that he hears none of the sounds of his children fighting, which is the usual sound he hears when he comes home. But he, they're, they're not there to greet him. Uh, he goes into the kitchen and there finds his wife sitting at the table, and it's obvious she's been crying. Um, he sits down next to her, and she simply says, um, Joe, um, I think you've become cold and distant and harsh and uncaring, and I don't think I love you anymore, and I, don't th- I think our marriage is over. Jim, Joe, Jim. Uh, Jean was passionately determined that she was going to study law at Cambridge. She disciplined herself to a punishing regime of study. And so effectively she sacrificed in her upper sixth year, she sacrificed lots of her sporting commitments, much of her social life, uh, dedicating it to study uh, she worked really hard. She uh, missed a few holidays with friends because she was wanting to give her time to intern uh, for free uh, in a local legal practice in the city um, and was building up a very solid UCAS application form. The day the results arrive, uh, she goes to the school, she gets the envelope, she opens the envelope, she reads the results, ABB. B. Good, very good, but not enough, but not enough. However, if you were to chat to Jim or Joe or Jane or all three of them this morning, they would actually say to you that while those moments were incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult, they would all describe them as the wake-up moment that they all needed. The wake-up moment. And I think most of us have experienced something like that, I think. A wake-up moment. A moment that's painful. uh, We'd rather it didn't happen. But some home truths are revealed to us. We were complacent beforehand. Now the reality has become clear. The problem has been exposed. But actually... That moment, while it's difficult, is a gift. It's a gift. The gift of the wake-up call. It's it's actually an invitation. If you respond, as they, all three of them did, if you respond correctly, it's actually an invitation into a different and better life. Uh, A life of gratitude, a life of joy, a life of productivity. Uh, and that would be the, the experience that each one of uh, Jim and Joe and Jean had. Well, we, as we've been working through these letters, these postcards from Jesus to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have seen again and again that these are, while it's written in a, a style of literature that we don't normally read, we're not really used to very much, it's got lots of symbols and pictures in it that we need to decode, Nevertheless, the message is really, at one level, really clear, really clear and really simple. Uh, Each church is uh, commended, usually, in some way. We'll see it's a little different this morning. He's commended, usually. You're doing something well. Keep going. Do that. Uh, But each church is challenged, challenged. Um, Each church is warned, but each church is encouraged. Uh, These churches, some are doing well. Some are doing not so well. and I want you to imagine, however, the postman arriving at, um, at Sardis. And the messenger arrives on a Sunday morning. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a letter. He's got a letter. Uh, and he says to the church leader that morning, the equivalent of Andy, who's leading the service. Oh, a, le- a letter's come. It's from the Apostle John. Oh, John. We love John great yeah brilliant uh and it's it's a letter from john from jesus oh what well, jesus well we're big big fans of jesus here great let's let's read it let's read it let's let's read it together we'll all sit down we'll read it together uh and then they come to those words i know your deeds you've a reputation for being alive but you're dead Now that I want to suggest to you is a wake-up call, a wake-up call, Uh, a revelation of a a a shaking you out of your complacency, a revealing of a big problem, but actually it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to respond, to respond correctly uh, and to live and come into a better kind uh, of life. And that's what is happening here. This this letter, this whole letter, is a wake-up call, a wake-up call to them, and perhaps a wake-up call to us. A wake-up call to us, because as I said, each letter finishes with these words: um, "He who has ear, an ear; let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The Spirit is still speaking. Those were words to them. But they're words for us. We've got to see, does the cap fit us this morning? Uh, These are not safe words for you to look at. Jesus is speaking to you by his spirit this morning too. Um, And as we effectively open someone else's meal, Uh, This morning, and we hear the rebuke of the Lord Jesus, the remedy the Lord Jesus prescribes, and the reward that He promises. We see these components of the letter. We, I think, must ask ourselves three questions. Three questions. First, are you alive? Am I alive? Are you awake? And are you aware? Okay. Are you alive? Are you awake? Are you aware? Let me tell you a little bit about Sardis before we dive into the details of the letter. This was a city with a a very distinguished history. It was the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. um, And back in the 500s BC under King Croesus, it was one of the wealthiest, most prestigious cities in the world. Uh, a city of wealth and luxury and pleasure. Uh, they discovered gold in the river. They mined it. And they were one of the first cities ever to, to mint gold coins. This was a city of incredible wealth. Um, the city, uh, on top of being wealthy, uh, with the power that that brings, also the city was built on uh, the top of a, a small mountain, effectively, Mount uh, uh There was one road up to the city, Uh, that was easy defended, and then on the three other sides of the city were a sheer cliff down 1,500 feet to the valley below. An incredibly secure uh, position. Uh, They had a, a, a supply of water, a natural spring in the middle of the city, and so if they were ever attacked, they just withdraw in the city, close the doors, and they were safe and secure. No one could touch them. Uh, That was until uh, 549 BC when King Cyrus, who we read about in the Bible, King Cyrus invaded uh, Asia Minor, which was modern-day Turkey, uh, and he besieged the city. Uh, And what he spotted, what some of his soldiers actually spotted, that at the back of the city, uh, the wall was really low. It was only about, about chest height. Uh, and the wall was really there at the back of the city, overlooking the cliff down. It was just there to keep people from falling over, not to stop enemies getting in. They were so confident that no one could climb the huge cliff. And so what Cyrus ordered that night was that a team of his crack troops would climb up the cliff. And when they arrived at the top of the cliff, hopping over the wall really easily, um, is that they found the soldiers who were so complacent and so overconfident that they fall- they fallen asleep. They'd fallen asleep. And so that night the city fell. was captured and sacked. The shocking thing is they didn't learn their lesson. They didn't learn their lesson because a couple of hundred years, in 214 BC, when Antiochus, the Greek king, exactly the same thing happened. Uh, he sent up at night a few soldiers, jumped over the wall, conquered the city. So complacent, uh, overconfident, and had fallen asleep. You see the parallel as you read the letter? Wake up, wake up. It's like city, like church. Overconfident, um, complacent, and actually in, at risking disaster. Risking disaster. And so that brings us to the first idea that I want you to see uh, this morning in verse 1. Is the rebuke. That Jesus gives to them uh, as a church. The rebuke Jesus gives. Verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll come to that in a moment. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Each letter begins with these words, I know, I know, I care, I understand, I'm aware of what's going on in your church. Uh, And in the previous four letters that we've studied together, those words are followed then by a commendation. I know what's going on in your church, and I know all the good things you're doing. I, I know your love and your service. And, uh, I, and yet, here, for the first time in the letters, there's no condemn or commendation at all. Uh, he is liter- Jesus has literally nothing good to say about this church. I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now, please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. <coughs> Sardis is a dead church. Sardis is a dead church. But do not think that uh, if you rocked up to uh, Christchurch Sardis uh, on a Sunday morning, you'd see eight old women. Uh, sitting there uh, and someone playing the organ with playing duff notes all the time and the vicar gets up and he's so old you think oh will he even make it to the end of the service you know you're, this, this is not that kind of day if you were to go to Christchurch Sardis on a Sunday you would know, come in the morning you would be greeted with a wonderful welcome at the door someone would guide you to your seat there'd be a huge crowd of people of different ages and stages, the singing would be fantastic, and the band would be tight. Uh, the preacher, when he gets up, he would be well he 'd be great, uh, he would be the perfect combination of funny yet profound yet practical yet faithful. Gold stars. Gold stars all round. The kids' ministry in the morning would be well-organized and fun and faithful. And, that, and that's just Sunday. Midweek, it was a jam-packed program. There were you know, a, a vibrant youth work. There were uh, courses constantly running. There were Bible studies happening for all sorts of different home groups and for men and women and uh, young moms. The, the, vibrant. Vibrant. This was a lively church. If you were to say to someone in Smyrna, oh, I go to Christchurch Sardis, they would say, oh, oh, wow. Oh, I have a good church. I've heard. Really, really lively. Really, really sound. Really sound. Yeah, what's Jesus' assessment? All the activities all happening. Yeah, what's Jesus' assessment? Is that they're, dead. Dead. This is a church that's theologically, there's no criticism of their theology as there has been in some of the other letters. There, They're clear on the truth. They know what they believe and why they believe it. They're, there's no hint of scandal, sexual immorality, or been involved in idol worship. None, none of that as has been in the other letters. None of that at all. Um, and yet, they're dead. They're dead. I came across a story this week about the bog people. It's a horrible title, I know. The bog people. The, these, these bodies that were dug up in peat bogs in Denmark, where people had fallen into bogs, in some cases, hundreds of years ago. Uh, but by some mystery of chemistry, they were perfectly preserved. You know, we're talking eyelashes and stubble on the chins. and That's just the women. Okay? Um... <laughs> Perfectly preserved, perfectly preserved, and yet profoundly dead, profoundly dead. All looks good at a distance, but no life there, no life at all. How do you get like that? How do you get like that as a church? And look, let's be honest. Strandtown uh, has a reputation for being lively. Hopefully there's no hint that we are, we've sacrificed the truth in any way. There's lots going on. There's lots going on. But what would Jesus' assessment be as he looks below the surface, below the veneer? How do you get like that? How do you get to be a church that's dead, dead, that's dead. Again, I think the, the description that Jesus gives of himself at the beginning of the letter is really helpful. Uh, he describes himself as the word, these are the words of him, the Lord Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. What, what makes you, what makes a, bo- a body physically dead? A body is physically dead when the spirit departs body's physically dead when the spirit departs. What's a dead church? A dead church is when the spirit of God is absent. When the spirit of God is absent. Um, A. W. Tozer, I have a quote here for you. A. W. Tozer, a Christian writer, uh, wrote these words, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would notice the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. It's a challenge, isn't it? Just because you're busy saying the right thing and singing the right thing and even doing the right thing doesn't mean you're alive, doesn't mean it at all. Now, hold on a minute. What does it mean by the seven spirits? I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. How can there be seven? Um... Well, as I kind of wrestle with that this week, uh, all the commentators agree that this is a reference to the one Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit who, according to Isaiah 11, verse 2, has the, a sevenfold ministry, perfect ministry. Let me read that verse to you Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The words are up here on the screen. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord rests on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. Look, I know in a church this size, there's folks who have various views on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We, looked, we explored some of the basics uh, a number of months ago, but I know there's a range of views here. If your view and theology of the Holy Spirit does not put you in a position where every single day you don't cry out for the Holy Spirit to give you a sense of his personal presence, you don't cry out for him to give you wisdom and understanding in every decision you've got to make, if you don't cry out for his strength, his might, to help you resist what is wrong and the counsel and the prompting to choose what is right, if you don't ask for Him to give you a fear of God that can overcome and set you free from fear of other people, then look, the reality is you've got to change your theology of your Holy Spirit. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit. If we think we're going to survive and thrive as a local church because we're super busy, And our programs are well organized. Then Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. You need him. You need the work of the Holy Spirit. What are the signs then that a church might be terminally ill? As as a local church, that it might be terminally ill. I think there's two things hinted at uh, in these words. Uh, Number one uh, is that... Their deeds are incomplete, unfinished. Verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. Now Jesus doesn't tell us what precisely is lacking in their works and their deeds. But I think we get a clue down at the end of verse 5. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. That idea of acknowledging one of his followers before the Father and his angels. Well, Jesus has used that language before. Uh, Jesus used that language, as you can see on the screen from in Mark chapter 8. Uh, where he said, if anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. I think the implication of what Jesus is saying there is that they were failing to acknowledge, lots of them were failing to acknowledge Jesus, to share the good news about Jesus with those they rub shoulders with. Maybe maybe part of the reason why there's no mention of any opposition uh, to this church is because they'd so compromised in that way that they weren't living and saying things that were drawing any attention or any opposition at all. They were the magnolia uh, in terms of evangelism. They just sort of disappeared into the background. I think that might be what is unfinished in their work. Remember, what were the ch- how the churches described in these first chapters of the book of Revelation? They're described as lampstands. The purpose of a church is to shine out in a dark world, to shine out with the light of the gospel and the hope uh, of uh, coming to know the Lord Jesus. It seems that they were f- they. They were failing, incomplete, in the very task that the Lord Jesus had assigned for them. I think there's another another symptom um, of a terminally ill church there in verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now, the way that verse is phrased, there's a few people who haven't soiled their clothes... I think you're meant to make the implication, there's a lot of people who have. There's a lot of people who have. Now, what does it mean then to soil your clothes, to become contaminated? Uh, well, as, as I said, clearly, I don't think there was a, there's any hint of sexual immorality. There's no hint of idol worship here. Uh, no scandalous sins like that. Uh, because that would have damaged their reputation. No, they have a good reputation. But of course we can become contaminated in all sorts of ways, can't we? In all sorts of respectable ways. We can be so influenced by the priorities and the values of the culture around us that we end up just living like everybody else, don't we? We end up being really passionate about. We say we're passionate about the Lord Jesus when we meet on a Sunday, but what we're really passionate about during the week is making it to the next level of your career. Or making it to the next level in your education. We say we, we we're serving the Lord Jesus, but the reality is, then what we're really what we really want to do is acquire more stuff to get the nicer house, to get the nicer car, the nicer clothes, w- w- whatever it is. We're so we say we're committed to the church, but the reality is, we're so concerned and so passionate that our children perform better than we do. We did. And we're so focused on that that, that, that service to the Lord Jesus t- goes on the back burner for a bit. Nothing unrespectable, but I think the Lord Jesus would say you have become contaminated by the world. Your values, your priorities are all out of, out of order. And which results in us living mediocre, fruitless, trivial lives. And Jesus is saying, wake up, wake up. He's not saying these harsh words because he's against them. No, he's saying these harsh words because he wants to shake them out of their complacency, show them the danger that they're in, and he has something better for them. This is an invitation into a better, more fruitful life. And so, the challenge then for each one of us, and I think we've got to think about this today ourselves can I see any of those symptoms of spiritual terminal illness in me? As a church, are we so focused on the needs of our current members that we've taken our eye off the ball about courageously, creatively reaching out to the world? Or as individuals, Are we so worried about the embarrassment or the ridicule or the exclusion that might come if we talk about Jesus that we keep our heads down and our mouths shut? If you see anything of those things in you, Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. The rebuke that Jesus gives, the remedy Jesus proposes, the remedy Jesus proposes Which is wake up. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these. There seems to be like a happens seems to happen far more commonly in TV cop shows than it probably does in real life. I'm I'm sure, but there's usually this scenario at some point where someone is hit by the stray bullet and they're 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 fighting for life in the arms of the hero, and the hero says, "Stay with me, stay with me, don't go." perhaps he even shakes the the person or even slaps the person don't go to don't, don't let yourself go into unconsciousness you might never wake up again that's that's the sense of what's going on here your life's in danger don't, don't go to sleep now that would be that would be a disaster It'd be a disaster uh, a friend of mine when he drives he had he, part of his work involved him driving a lot uh, and one of his, a recipe he swears by to stay awake when you're tired while driving. My recipe is get some sleep. But that's by the by. Uh, his recipe for staying awake while you're driving was to turn down all the windows of his car and turn up the radio almost to the max to keep himself awake. Spiritually, when we are sleepy, what's the spiritual equivalent to turning down all the windows and turning up the radio to keep us awake. Well, I think there are a couple here that Jesus says. First, we are to remember. Verse three, remember therefore what you have received and heard. What is it they've received and heard? Well, what they've received and heard is the message of the gospel, isn't it? That there is a real true creator God who made this world In all its beauty and complexity. And yet, although he is powerful and stands over the whole show, he has set his love on us. He sent his son to die for me. For you, if you know him. Lived and died on the cross, bearing the penalty for all my shame, all the ways that I have offended him all the ways that I've ignored and rejected his loving rules, all the ways that I've used and abused other people to get ahead. And because he was raised to life again, if I come to him and admit my guilt, if I come and ask for forgiveness, if I come believing that he did everything necessary for me on the cross, for all my sin and shame to be taken away, then I can be forgiven Completely completely everything past and present and even future that I can become a part of God's family that I can call the creator of the universe my father and that I can have a fantastic future a future in the new heavens and the new earth enjoying a relationship with God that begins now but will only get better that's what you've got and so the reality then is that there really is a heaven to be gained. There really is a hell to be feared for those who reject that gospel, that good news about the Lord Jesus. We, what we do here on a Sunday morning effectively is it's a memory exercise because we're prone to forget. We come and re, we rehearse the gospel We are distracted by all the priorities of the world during the week. We come to remember what is true and what is important, most important, every Sunday. We remember. If you want to live a fruitful life, if we want to wake up, then we remember the gospel. We're also called to repent, repent. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard and repent. Now, I think that's a religious word that we often get confused. Uh, The word repent doesn't mean uh, get yourself sorted out, turn over a new leaf, and try a bit harder. That's not what repent means. Repent is a relational word in the Bible. It means come back to someone that you were away from. Return to them. In this case, return to the Lord Jesus. It's not about you shaping up and pulling your socks up and trying a bit harder. It's by coming back to, to him, to the Lord Jesus, and hearing his words to you, let me clean you up. Let me sort you out. Let me reshape the loves of your heart. Let me use you. Commit your, come back, recommit yourself to me. We are to remember, we are to repent. And we are to strengthen what remains. Verse 2 strengthen what remains. What does that mean? Uh, Recently, a friend of mine hurt his shoulder. Uh, He was lifting something he shouldn't have been lifting on his own, and he knocked his shoulder out. And to get treatment, he had to go to the physio. And I think he expected two things one, that uh, treatment would be quick, and uh, two, that Treatment would be manly, in his words. So he went along and said, okay, right, um, when are we lifting the weights here? You know, And he obviously needed to lift weights to fix the shoulder. Went, just show me the weights and I'll, I'll lift them. Uh, and the physio handed him this these little elastic, what he calls pathetic elastic bands. right? And the physio simply said, just go home for, for two weeks and do these exercises, and then come back and see me. Uh, and then he came home and the or came back to see the physio, did the exercises. Uh, and the physio said, you're doing well, great. That's a good improvement. Um, and then at this point, my friend again says, do we graduate to the weights now? And the physio said these words. It's consistency, not intensity, that is the key. Consistency in small things over time will bring health and strength. I think as Christians, when we feel there's something wrong with us spiritually, we look for intensity. Look, I need to go on a retreat. Uh, I need a 30 days to spiritual health program to go on and do that and get through that and then I'll be sorted. No, 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 no. Strengthen what remains, what you've got. Like, Little embers in the fire, you need to gently put kindling on those. Let that burn up a bit before then you add more to it. And so let, let's be practical. What does that look like? What does that look like? If you're spiritually struggling, if you feel, look, I am weary of the Christian life, I'm finding it hard, I think what I've got is about to die, where do you start? Where do you start? Maybe you're like me and you're not a morning person. Uh, I I buffer in the morning rather than switch on, so I I, I get up slowly. Uh, But perhaps you're like me. Well, my advice to you is get up three minutes earlier than you would normally. Get up three minutes earlier. Download a a Bible verse for the day app. Get up three minutes earlier and read that one verse. Pick one word out of that verse and say thank you to God for that. On your way to work, perhaps rather than just listening to the radio, how about you listen to some worship music? Perhaps at lunchtime you read that same verse again and see if you spot anything else in it. At the end of the day, just before you swing your legs into bed, take a moment to reflect on your day. And say, sorry, thank you, please. Strengthen what you've got. Consistency in the small things over time will lead to health and strength spiritually. That's how we wake up spiritually, slowly, faithfully, over time. We have the rebuke Jesus gives Am I alive? we have uh, the remedy that Jesus gives. Uh, Am I awake? Am I awake? Am I doing these things? And lastly, the reward Jesus promises, and our time is gone, but the reward Jesus promises. The reason Jesus gives this loving warning is that he wants them, passionately wants them, to share in the rewards that he has for his people. Now, what we've got in these letters uh, to the churches in Revelation, each one finishes with these wonderful promises. And if you haven't done it already, uh, read some of these again. Just read the last couple of verses of each letter again and just reflect on how amazing these rewards are that he promises for all his people who remain faithful, who keep remembering and repenting and strengthening what remains here, listen to what we've got here. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Three things, intimacy, purity, and security. Intimacy, they will. those who remain faithful, who keep remembering and repenting and strengthening what remains, one day we will walk with Jesus. We will walk with Jesus. It's a, it's a, when you stop and think about it, it's a beautiful image, a beautiful picture of intimacy. Lovers and friends walk together. Not particularly because they have anywhere to go. But it's just an opportunity to spend time, to get to know each other, to enjoy one another's company. At the very beginning of the Bible story in the book of Genesis, we read that the first man and first woman in the cool of the evening walked with God. They knew him face to face. He was interested in them, cared for them, and wanted that relationship to flourish. That is what's on offer for us. That's what on offer for us, each one of us, that we will get to enjoy an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. Come. Lee, come. Walk with me. Chat with me for a bit. It's a beautiful image. Purity. They will be dressed in white. This is an accident, by the way, but uh, we'll just let that slide. Um, all dressed in white what is that what does that mean what does it mean to be dressed in white well a little later in the book a little later in the book john in chapter 7 gets a vision of what the of the saints in heaven and we read in chapter 7 that they are dressed in white why because they've been really Wonderfully pure and careful in the way they live. No, no, no. They're dressed in white because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Because of what Jesus has done, not their merit, but his mercy, not their reward, but his gift to them. Not something they've earned, but his gift to them. Cleansing. Full forgiveness. Because they turn to Christ, ask for his forgiveness, they receive cleansing. They are made ready to walk with him, cleansed from all guilt and shame, cleansed from all fear, cleansed from all regret, ready to enter into all that he has for them. We will receive intimacy, purity, and then finally, security, security. I will never blot out his name from the book of life and will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, if you were convicted of a capital offense in a Roman city, um, before they, after they sentenced you to death, before they executed you, there was a bit of a ceremony where your name would be blotted out of the citizenship record. Your name was taken out of the book. It was as if you never lived. Jesus is saying, no matter what you face now, no matter what rejection you face now, despite the might of Rome, you will never, ever be blotted out of my book, the book of life. And when that books, when those books on the final day are opened and the names are read out, you will get a personal introduction to the Father. I will acknowledge him before the Father and his angels. Father, this is Lee. He's one of mine. He belongs to me. He's my friend and my brother perfect acceptance, absolute security. That's what's on offer for those who remain faithful, who remember the gospel, who love it, hold on to it tight, who repent and who strengthen what's remained. So if you are someone this morning and you're finding the Christian life wearying, wearying, if you're finding it difficult If you have been totally honest and you look at how you've been living and you feel, I have lived a mediocre, fruitless, pretty trivial life. What have I done for him? Then what Jesus says to you and to me this morning is, wake up. Wake up. Remember the gospel. Repent. Turn back to me. Strengthen what remains. And Jesus will use us in the present and will reward us wonderfully in the future. Before we respond and share in that meeting, which again rehearses the gospel as we remember just what it took for us to have this wonderful future, the death of Christ on our behalf, I'm going to pray for us.